0: Well, good morning. For those of us who have tasted the sweet delight of communion with God and have experienced the kindness of Christ ministered to us in the Eucharist, I think today's text in Revelation 19 must seem almost appalling. Jesus appears at the end of time to slay all his enemies. Wearing a robe dipped in blood, wielding a sharp sword, Jesus returns to do battle with the kings and the armies of the world that oppose him with implacable hatred. The outcome of the battle is appalling. Before the people of God can celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb, First must come the horrific sight of the Feast of the Damned. All the carrion eaters of the world are gathered to gorge themselves on the flesh of kings and armies and horses." Well, happy Mother's Day, everybody. I mean, how can this be? Is this the same Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus? Is this the same Jesus who gently comforted Jairus and his wife? Is this the same man about whom Isaiah spoke, saying that he would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick? Well, let me invite you to take out this white handout that you have there. It looks like this. And open it up, if you will. And at the same time, if you would turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 in your Bibles. And let's see if we can get this sorted, shall we? The scene in Revelation 19 is located at the end of the spiral of history. You recall that two weeks ago we said that history is characterized by ever-growing evil until it finally spirals to its great climactic conclusion. And that conclusion is marked by, well, what else? Seven great events. And I've listed them for you there on your handout. The appearance of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the resurrection of the saints, the millennium, a little while, the general resurrection, and the final judgment. These seven events are laid out for us but not in any great detail in Revelation 19 and 20. Now, if you're looking to create controversy, take these seven little chess pieces and throw them out there on the board. I promise you, every theologian, Bible student, and Sunday school teacher will have some opinion on how they ought to be played. But your faith only requires of you That about these seven things you confess, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That is all that orthodoxy requires of you. But this morning, I would like for us to dig perhaps a little deeper in hopes that we might have a better and fuller understanding of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so far in our study of the book, we've been left with this puzzle. From the beginning, God is declared almighty. He was, he is, he will be almighty in all of human history. And he will most assuredly accomplish his purposes in the world, which are to gather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship and enjoy him forever. But if all this is so... How do we explain the chaos that clearly exists all around us? To date, we have not answered that question. This morning, the Lord helping us, we will. Turn with me to page four of your handout. That's the last page of the handout there. There you see the outline of the revelation to John. Three weeks ago, we looked at chapters four and five. The king's reign over all of history. Next, we looked at chapters 6 through 11, the characterization of the current history of the world. This week, we're looking at chapters 15 through 20, the king returns to set the world to rights. But smack in the middle of the book, chapters 12 through 14, are the great why of the book of Revelation. They reveal to us why the seeming chaos of the world. Why should history go on as it does if God is supposed to be the king of all the world? Well, here's the summary of the why. In opposition to the Holy perfect, pure trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stands the great and horrible anti-trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now this morning, I have no desire to give this anti-trinity any due press or attention. It was born of chaos and rebellion. And its end is utter destruction in the lake of fire. But Christian, if you are going to get by in the midst of the cosmic chaos in which you are in, it's important to know who your enemy is. You see, these three are not just some in-time entity. They are very much alive and at work every day in the world in which we live right now. Now, Isaiah 14, and I put it in your hand out there, Isaiah 14 tells us about the origin of the dragon. The dragon came about long before the creation of man. Long, long ago, the most glorious angel in heaven, the one who was the light bearer himself, his name was Lucifer, the light bearer, took offense at God Why shouldn't he hold the highest place? Wasn't he just as glorious as God? Why shouldn't the other angels worship him? He was the big dog of heaven. And bitterness arose in his heart. He was entitled to it! And in his outrage, Lucifer enlisted one-third of the angels of heaven to join him in a rebellion against God. Now, the result was a huge cosmic war that has been going on ever since, right here on Earth. Well, the story continues in Revelation chapter 12. That's also there in your handout. Look at verse 9, Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you that dwell therein, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is, is short. The most lovely angel in heaven became, through his rebellion, the most heinous and hateful dragon. His former commitment to God became a commitment to destroy God and all of God's followers. Here's information about the second member of this unholy trinity. It's found in Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on those horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling That is, those who dwell in heaven. Here then is the second member of the unholy trinity, the beast. Now, verse 1 there tells us that he has ten horns. That is, he has very great power. He does not have seven horns because that would be the fullness of power. He doesn't have all power, but he's got plenty. He has seven heads. In other words, he appears in every possible manifestation. He's everywhere. And here's the final clue to his identity. He has ten diadems. The diadem is the crown of political rule or power. And over and over and over again, the beast has been manifested by taking over the world's political systems. Who is the beast? He is every governmental system that seeks to supplant the rule of God in your heart and mine. Now, our brother and sister Christians who serve us in the political realm wrestle with this beast every day. The temptation so smoothly presented to them is to believe that we humans can solve all our problems by curtailing human liberty. Thomas Jefferson said this, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern any other. Now, why is that? Because liberty, true political liberty, is only possible where the one true king is restraining, directing, and giving self-control to its citizens. And I want you to pray for our Christian politicians who must wrestle with this beast every day. You see, humanity is only too willing to trade its soul to the beast. And it does so whenever its welfare, its security, or its pocketbook is threatened. The beast says, Surrender your liberty to me, and I will give you all these things. But in the end, he, pre- he proves to be nothing but a beastly tyrant. <clears throat> Lastly, the false prophet. Look with me at, verse, at chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. The false prophet, the third member of the unholy trinity, what does he do? Verse 13 says, he performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people Now, in our current age, the false prophet does this through the seductions of secularism, technology, and the media. Go back again and look at the halftime show at this year's Super Bowl. And there you will see the false prophet in all his Western glory. But in other ages and places, he works through magic and false religion. Yet the effect is always the same, to draw the world away from God toward worshiping what is false. So this morning, Christian, you've had your warning. This unholy anti-Trinity is bent on deceiving the whole world. Its desire is to make you and me a captive of its rebellion against God. In 13, chapter 13, verse 18, John puts the warning this way. This is a little insertion by John in the middle of the Revelation. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the number of perfection? Knowing what you know about three and about seven, it wouldn't take long for you to figure out, well, what's the number of perfection? Seven, seven, seven. Seven, seven, seven is the perfection of completeness. But what then is the number of the anti-trinity? Yes, six, six, six. You see, six, six, six appears so close. It is so close, in fact, it deceives the entire world. Everyone except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. You see, 666 describes the kind of world that you and I live in. It's filled with the most perplexing deception. The false prophet looks like a lamb! But it is only those who know the true shepherd who realize his voice is the voice of the dragon. This unholy anti-trinity is committed to one end, to destroy all that God has made. Remember when you are a teenager? And you used to say, oh, tempt me, God. I just can't wait. As if the devil wanted to offer you something. He's got one thing in store for you. He hates you. And he's committed to your complete destruction. He will, if he could, take even the elect with him into perdition. Okay. <clears throat> wow. Given that that is the character of things that Jesus is coming to deal with, perhaps then it makes more sense why the host of heaven can actually rejoice in judgment. You see, Revelation 19 is not some mindless violence, but it is a setting to rights of cosmic wrong. It is dealing with the source of evil, which remains unrepentant and malevolent even to the end, and dealing with it with finality. In your handout there, if you look, you'll see Revelation 15, too, and you can see that the heavens declare the rightness of what Jesus is coming to do in Revelation 19. In Revelation 16, 7, the martyrs know the rightness of what Jesus is coming to do, and they praise God for his judgments. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. But you see, most of all, it is wicked humanity that is the perfect demonstration that the Lord Jesus is coming to To bring the only solution to the problem. In chapter 16 through 18. God unleashes the last seven plagues upon the earth. But what you have to understand here. These are not the uncontrolled peckishness of an offended child. It is quite the opposite. God's purpose in sending these plagues upon the world. Is to bring the world back to repentance. Think of it this way. God placed man in a perfect environment since so you can do whatever you want. And what did man do? He joined with a dragon in rebellion against God. God then spends long years sending every prophet he can find to the people. And what do they do? They join with the beast in killing the prophets. God then says, well, I'll send plagues upon the world, hoping that such severe discipline will bring man back to his senses. But look at your handout, chapter 16, verse 10. Even in the most severe of God's discipline, mankind refuses to repent. Verse 21 says, instead of repenting, humanity joins with the anti-trinity, cursing God. So eventually, there comes a time when God says, well, if you really want to follow the anti-Trinity that much, if you really want to serve a wicked master whose aim is nothing but your destruction, I'll give you your wish. If you look at 16, verse 13 there, you see that in the end, It is the anti-Trinity itself that gathers all the armies of the world to do open combat with the Lord Jesus Christ. Symbolically, it happens at a place called Armageddon. Well, let's pick up the story then from today's text. Look back at your Bibles, Revelation 19, 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war with him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword. It came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You see, this unholy anti-trinity in their wicked madness have forgotten two great facts. They fling themselves into their own destruction because they will not believe that God was, God is, and God remains almighty. Almighty. There is no chance that they can defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. Their end must be the lake of fire. Secondly, this anti-Trinity cares not a fig that the battlefields of this world are littered with human corpses. Don't be deceived, Christian. The devil hates you and has a plan for your destruction. But what he cannot fathom is this. God has sealed the elect before the foundations of the world. They may be martyred. They may perish in the judgments along with the world. Yet God has sworn to bring his elect to a good end. And that means you. Well, the next four verses here cover a whole lot of territory, chapter 20, verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient servant, serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and they threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. After his great victory, Christ will take up his throne right here on earth. This is called the Millennial Kingdom. Here, the resurrected saints, either all of us or those who were martyred, will reign alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the number here, 1,000, may be symbolic. In other words, for a very long time. What follows next is a short period where once again, both heaven and earth will see the rightness of God's justice. Satan is released once again upon the earth and he has no hope of victory. Yet, what does he do? He continues his rebellion against God, attempting to stir up the nations against their rightful king. And of course, he fails. Then comes the general resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. And all these stand before the great white throne of judgment. Look at 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, if you're exhausted from cosmic battle this morning, (laughs) I can hardly blame you. These are difficult words to listen to. Yet, without a knowledge of them, it is impossible for you to run your race and escape the deception of the enemy. Here are three walkaways from what we've looked at this morning. The first is this. You and I can have hope rather than despair. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, it is filled with evil and wrongdoing of every kind in every place. But there is no call here to cynicism or hopelessness or disengagement. Things are proceeding to God's end He will visit proper, perfect, and appropriate justice to every wrongdoing and every misdeed. The entire scope of evil, cosmic, national, local, and personal, will be dealt with. Things will be set to rights. Secondly, if you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. You, believer, you've been given a privilege. Your eyes have been opened. You have access to understand the final outcome. Therefore, fear God and reverence His holiness. Choose wisely how you will live. Keep in the forefront of your mind... What that great day of judgment will look like. And what it will mean when you are standing there before the throne. Finally, you may have confidence that the tragedies, sorrows, and injustices that you experience are known to God. None of them will ultimately fall to the wayside forgotten. God sees every one of them and has a plan to turn them into joy and great reward in the end. Amen.